little bit of a rough start this morning with the uh, microphone stand and whatnot, but as you might have been able to detect from uh, Liz's prayer there, thank you for that prayer, Liz, um, we are talking about things like evil and uh, Satan, and I don't know if that microphone stand is spiritual warfare, but... <laughs> so we're in the middle of this series right now called Rooted, and uh, big picture, we're asking really big questions about faith. Uh, the answers to which have the potential to either root and ground and like, make our faith firm, or the answers have the potential to undermine our faith. So we're asking big questions. This morning's question is this one. It's who, who, is, who is our enemy? If you know me, I've been thinking about this over the last two weeks, and I've actually been really nervous about this sermon. Evil. Satan, the devil, we don't do this stuff at Park Church very much. We don't talk about this stuff very much. Um, I was nervous that I would, I would share this and it would fall on deaf ears. We live in a highly uh, intelligent, highly educated, progressive Northeast New Jersey culture where Satan and the devil is kind of not, it's not really our currency. And so I was worried, would I lose the people? Would I lose you before we even get started? So I was working on this on Wednesday, and I looked down at my phone at 3.40 p.m., and the New York Times gave me an alert. It said a school shooting had started in Florida, and you know uh, where it goes from there. I thought to myself, I'm not going to have to work very hard to convince people that evil exists. The question, though, who is our enemy? Our enemy is not Nicholas Cruz, the boy who killed 17 people and wounded many others. He's not our enemy. The Apostle Paul, he is a guy uh, who wrote a lot of the New Testament. He was a first century Christian who started churches, um, who supported churches, who challenged, encouraged, and equipped churches. He would go from town to town around the eastern Mediterranean, and he would tell people about Jesus at all costs, and it cost him. People didn't like it, and uh, they beat him up. They imprisoned him totally unjustly. They whipped him. They flogged him. One time, they left him for dead. They thought they had killed him. His blood was spilled for Jesus. His flesh was beat up. And the Apostle Paul knew who our enemy was. He wrote in the letter to the Ephesians, for our struggle... It's not against Nicholas Cruz. Our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood. Our struggle is against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil that exist in the heavenly realms, not flesh and blood. It's never flesh and blood, but it's what's behind the flesh and blood that causes this sort of chaos, that causes this sort of violence, that causes this sort of darkness to take over a person who would go and do something like that. The same darkness that threatens each and every one of our lives every day if we let it get in there, if we let it take root. That's who our enemy is. 
We're going to take this, though, um, not on our own terms. We're not going to take this on uh, the way we understand it. We're going to take this on Jesus' terms. We're going to listen to what Jesus has to say about this enemy. Because ultimately, we don't believe in Satan. I mean, we can believe he exists, and that's fine. But ultimately, we believe in Jesus. The very first message in this series, uh, we heard a story that Jesus told. It was a parable. It was a story where God is pictured like a farmer who's throwing seed across a field, looking for crops to grow, looking for plants to grow, looking for fruit to be born. And this is a picture of what God wants for each and every one of us. God wants for us, for his seed, for his word, for his life, to get planted in us for, and for our tree of faith to grow and for it to mature and for fruit to be born and for the world to be fed by the fruit of our faith. And for that to happen, our tree needs roots that goes down deep into the soil and finds nourishment in God's life and finds strength because when the storms come, when the droughts hit, uh, your tree will survive then if it's rooted correctly. You might remember this. Uh, Jesus talks about four different types of soil. The fourth soil was the one that worked. That's, this was the rich soil. It was deep. Uh, the seed went in, roots went down, and crops grew a hundredfold. This is what God wants for you. The third soil, you might remember, it also worked. Roots went down, crops started maybe to grow, except weeds, thorns grew up around it and it choked the life out of it. And Jesus means by that, um, the things that we care about that we shouldn't actually care about, things like wealth and power and fame and fortune, these things can choke the life out of our faith. The second soil, this was the one that looked good. But what happened is it, there was no depth to it. And so when the little seedling would sprout the next day, the sun would come up, it would dry it, and that little plant, that little spark of faith, it would die. And when things happen that are hard, Jesus is saying, your faith has to be deep enough to uh, outlast those kinds of things. But the first soil, the first soil was the one that uh, was the walking path. In, in every field, there's a path that the farmer has to walk through. And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, he walks down that path, and his family walks down that path, and his servants and slaves, and any visitor to the house, all of these people walk down that path. Animals uh, who are pulling carts walk down that path. And over time, the soil on that path gets packed down. It gets compressed. It gets smushed. It gets so hard that when the seed falls on that path, the seed has no chance of going in. And Jesus says when that happens, uh, there are birds in the tree, and the bird is looking out for that, and the bird comes, and the bird snatches away that seed so that life can't grow. And do you remember how Jesus talked about what those birds represented? He said, it'll be right up here. Um, he said, uh, when that happens, that's like Satan. That's Satan immediately coming, and it's uh, Satan taking away, taking away that word. It's not just that people have mental illnesses and do horrible things, though they do. 
It's not just that society is broken and it causes more brokenness and families are broken and it causes more brokenness and relationships and people are broken and causes more brokenness. It's not just that we sin, that we do things that are awful and that causes more brokenness, though we do. But there is an enemy who is actively working to steal God's life from you. If we ignore that, we ignore the truth. Waiting and watching, watching the way life, your circumstances, your family, your sin, your issues, watching how those things have hardened you and, and, and um, shaped you just like that dirt on the path, just like that soil, so that at the right time, Satan can come and snatch away the life that God is meaning to plant in you. And I bet if you stopped and thought about it, you might know something of what this is like. Since I've been uh, worrying about this message for a few weeks now, I've been talking to a lot of people about how this dynamic plays out. And I have been um, personally just overwhelmed by how deep and how far-reaching Satan's influence really is to steal life away from people who would otherwise have it. Maybe for you, you're someone who, when you were younger, you suffered through something that you shouldn't have had to suffer through. Someone did something to you that you shouldn't have had to experience. Some traumatic thing happened in your family that has rocked your world. Uh, you witnessed something that you shouldn't have ever been a witness to at that young age. Think about these kids in Florida, these survivors who have to live with this for the rest of their life. And when you're young like that, even if you're not young, you don't know how to deal with that. You don't know what to do with that. Those feelings are too hard to feel. Those feelings are too scary to feel. And so what we do with them is we take them and we put them in a box and we put them deep in our heart and we push them down, we push them down, and it gets compressed, it gets compacted. As that event, we relive it and it it's like someone's walking on us, walking on us, pushing us down. So that what happens is there's this hardness. There's this impenetrable force, fortress in us. And to the outside, we just... We're just afraid, or we're just unfeeling, or we're just bitter, we're just angry. For some of you, maybe you lost something or someone close to you. You lost a spouse. You lost a parent. You lost the security of a mom and a dad who love you when they got divorced, and that shook your world. You lost something that's hard to communicate, like you lost a dream. You lost something that you always wanted in life. And the grief of feeling that is just too much, because grief is really hard. It's hard to face, and if we don't face it, what happens? We just push it down. We scrunch it in there, we squish it down, we think we can ignore it, but we put it down, we push it down, and it's like that soil is just compressed and compressed and compressed, and we're hardened and hardened. And maybe, maybe it's not something that has been done to you or something that's happened in your life, but it's something that you've done, some sin that you've done that you can't seem to escape, some hurt that you've caused, some evil that you've perpetuated, and you can't seem to you, you can't seem to get past it. You can't seem to find forgiveness from it. You're not sure what God thinks of you. You can't seem to find forgiveness from the person you've hurt. 
you definitely can't seem to find forgiveness from yourself. And so that, that just turns into guilt that's oppressive. It turns into self-hate. It turns into an endless quest to try to prove yourself. Or it turns into running away from it, running into anything where you can find relief from it. These kinds of things, this is where addiction uh, finds a breeding ground. This is where lifelong depression and despair become just your home. This is where uh, phoniness lives, because we can't possibly imagine people knowing really what's going on in our lives. This is where, this is where life is lost. This is where Nicholas Cruz's are born. And don't you think that the enemy is there just waiting and watching, encouraging people to walk down that path, step on that guy a little bit more, step on that woman's heart a little bit more, stealing the life from you. If you're doing uh, the rooted material with us over the course of this semester, um, this week in day five, you're going to read about this phenomenon. Uh, rooted puts a name on what this pushed down, hardened dirt that won't let God's life in. They put a name on it, and this is it. Uh, they call it a stronghold. A stronghold, here's a definition, it's an area in our lives where our circumstances, our sin, and our enemy have worked together to create destructive patterns in our lives. The literal meaning of a stronghold, this was a place, this was a fortress, that it was so strong, so fortified, that no enemy attacker could ever think to penetrate it. If you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, or watched, or read Lord of the Rings, um, Helm's Deep is this, Right? This is a place where for generations people have gone for protection. Uh, Helm's Deep was a stronghold that could not be penetrated. Except here's the thing. These strongholds, these don't protect us from our enemy. Our enemy uses these things to protect us from God, from God's life-giving uh, power. Uh, this is the impenetrable prison cell that we find ourselves in and we can't get out of. In the rooted material, it talks about like this, a weakness in our lives that Satan twists into a binding knot that we can't undo, but where he is holding the ropes. It's probably easier to see that sort of thing in the lives of others around you, right? But can you see that in yourself? For some of you, for some of us, these are huge things, huge, life-limiting, life-changing things, and you know them all too well. They live right here every day. For some of us, um, they're smaller, but no less potentially dangerous. The thing you just can't get past, no matter how hard you try. The battle that wages for your soul that you can't seem to ever finally win. The thing that, no matter how far you come, no matter how far you walk, it's like there's a string on you that is just going to pull you back as soon as you take a step forward. If this is really heavy, it's because it is really heavy. But this is also real life. Here's the thing, though. In Jesus, in the person who told this parable, this story, for the first time, in him there is so much hope, so much promise, so much good news. And we're going to look at a story this morning that not only shows how we can face our strongholds, but we're going to look at what Jesus means to do with them.
and how Jesus means to destroy them and has the power to do so and free us from them. And here's the bottom line. The enemy wants to destroy your life. Jesus has come to give you life. The enemy wants to fortify and take advantage of these strongholds. Jesus has come to destroy them. And he has the power to break them. And he's doing it every day. The story that we're going to look at comes in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark was, Mark was a guy who, um, he wrote this Gospel. Mark, Gospels are stories about Jesus. There's a good chance he wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus, but he was probably very close with Peter. Peter was Jesus' like, number one follower. Uh, and so if anyone had an inside story of what went on around the ministry of Jesus, uh, Peter would have been that guy. And so Mark gets all of his stuff from Peter. In chapter 9, there's this story of this boy who's demon-possessed. And uh, the boy's father tries to bring this demon-possessed boy to the disciples, to Jesus' followers, to have the disciples heal him, um, to get rid of this demon. This is a young boy um, who this evil spirit has taken control over. He can't hear, he can't speak, and his life is being taken away from it. Now look, best to my understanding, none of us are demon-possessed in this way, okay? But just like this boy, we have these strongholds, and the enemy uses these things to take away our lives, to take control over us, over us and you'll see that. So this man, he brings his boy to, to, the, to the disciples to have him healed, to have him exercised, but in this case, his guys couldn't do it. The disciples couldn't do it. So they were a little freaked out about this. They wanted to know why couldn't they do this. The crowd was freaked out about this because they thought Jesus' people, they should be able to cast out this sort of evil spirit. What's going on here? So there's quite a commotion. Jesus comes and asks, what's the commotion? Uh, and here's our story. The father says, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down. He foams and grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out but they could not. And so they brought the boy to Jesus. When the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now this is, this is quite a scene. It's kind of hard for us to imagine. Jesus, Jesus sees it himself, and he asks the father, he says, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now, from childhood, as long as can be remembered, I want to pause right here and just lift out some important details from this. Um, the first thing, this has been happening for as long as this boy and as long as this father can remember. There's a good chance that this boy doesn't know life outside of having this uh, evil spirit in him. You know the fish, like when fish swim in water, they don't know they're swimming in water, right? That's, that's where this boy lives. That's also where this father lives because he doesn't know where to go with this thing. He, did, he can't imagine a life for his son without this. Um, the second thing to point out is that anything like this, anything from childhood, this was considered incurable. This wasn't a broken leg that could be mended. This wasn't a fever that would come and go. This wasn't a splinter that got infected that they could treat. This was considered incurable. He would live with this until his death. He had no hope of getting rid of it. And what about yours? What about your stronghold? 
your demon? Is it incurable? The anxiety that weighs down your every breath. The fear that causes you to hide. The resentment, the anger, the bitterness, the addiction, the insecurity. Do you think it impossible to get rid of? Maybe you've had it from childhood. You've had it for so long that you can't remember life without it. Maybe it's impacted you so deep that you don't remember life without it. Maybe you are like the fish in water and you've given up hope that you could ever be cured. And listen, maybe you've just learned to live with it because it's not going to go away anyway. And what's worse, maybe you've come to actually be happy with it. Because in some strange way, it provides protection from further pain. And it might. We use defense mechanisms like this all the time to protect ourselves, even if at the same time those defense mechanisms imprison us. And it works, kind of. And this is just nasty. This is a nasty trick that the enemy plays on us uh, to convince us that they're incurable to convince us that we have to learn to live with these things, to convince us that our lives might be better with them, there's some illusion of safety in them. This is just a trick that the enemy plays on us. But don't, don't fall for this trick because every time the wool is pulled over our eyes and the dad, the dad puts crystal clarity on this. He says, it has often cast him into the fire and into the water. The spirit has tried to burn him and tried to drown him because it wants to destroy him, to destroy him. Don't lose that. Our enemy is not interested in helping us build strongholds in order that our lives, can, we can be relatively safe, in order to keep us free from any further pain that opening that wound and cleaning it out would cause. He's not interested in protecting us. He's interested in one thing, your destruction, your death to deceive you, to rob you of life and hope and joy and peace, to snatch away the life that God means to give you so that you never receive it. And you might not even know that that's what's happening around your soul. But if we believe Jesus, it is. Dad is under no illusions about this. Dad understands what this enemy is out to get. And He wants it gone if there's any way possible in the world. If there's any hope of it being gone, and he knows he can't do it on his own. He knows the boy, he can't do it. He knows the disciples can't help here. They couldn't do it. So he has reached a point where he is just desperate, desperate enough. And he says to Jesus, he says, but if you are able, if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. I have tried everything. I've gone to the doctors. I've gone to the witch doctors. I've Googled it. I've binged it. I've tried other religious people. I've tried the exercise, the demon, and 10 days or less program. I've read the books. I've gone to your guys, and they couldn't help. I have tried everything, and I can't. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. I've tried every door. And every door is locked. Jesus looks at him. And I, I, I imagine Jesus giving this little smirk, this little smile. If, if I'm able. 
if I have pity for you. This word pity, we don't have time to go into it now, but this word pity, this is the same word that's used throughout the Gospels again and again and again to describe what Jesus feels, what God's heart feels when he sees his people suffering or lost or broken. This is the gut-wrenching, tear-your-stomach-apart kind of compassion if I have pity. Jesus said to him, if you are able, if I'm able, do you know what I can do? Haven't you seen the way I've healed people before? Haven't you seen the way I've cast demons out before? I'm giving sight back to the blind. I've given hearing back to the deaf. I can feed people with just a little bit of food, thousands of people. I can even control the weather. If you are able, of course I am able. And then Jesus, in in only Jesus' way, Jesus cranks up the volume. All things can be done for the one who believes. All things. For the boy who doesn't doesn't know life without this thing sucking the life out of him, all things. For the father who can't imagine the day where he can look into his son's eyes and see his son rather than a demon, all things. For you who have gone through something so hard that your life is forever changed because of it and you think there's no cure for it, all things. For those of you who are bleeding and dying one day at a time from anxiety cutting you slowly, all things. For you who have lost and the pain has gone deep and it's turned to anger and bitter and resentment, all things. To you who run into addictions thinking that they can uh, be your escape, but now you can't escape them, all things. To you whose sin, whose mistakes, whose hurt, whose evil you've perpetuated haunt you day after day after day. All things, Jesus says. You think your thing is incurable? All things. All things for the one who believes. And this is where for most of us the record stops and it scratches and... uh, We get kind of stopped in our tracks. This is the point where the rubber meets the road. All things for the one who believes. Well, can the dad believe this? He's he's been looking for this for years. He's been hoping for this for years. He hasn't seen it yet. Can he believe it? Can you believe? Can you believe that Jesus' all things includes your thing? Can Jesus really shatter your stronghold? Can Jesus really finally take this from you? How can I believe? I want to believe, but my faith can only take me so far until that string pulls me back. How do I believe? How can I go further when my belief can't take me any further? Isn't isn't this where we get stuck? Isn't this where we get stopped in our tracks? Dad rushes to the rescue with perhaps the most profound prayer we can ever learn, we can ever uh, memorize, and we can ever make our own. He comes rushing to Jesus, and he immediately cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
This is a remarkable, this is the depth of honesty. This is a confession of faith that my faith isn't enough. Do you know what that feels like? This is an admission uh, of as much as I want it, as much as I care, as much as I try, as much as I try to reach it, it is out of my reach and I am helpless. It's that moment in faith, and we all have these, where our faith is moving us along, it's moving us forward, Jesus is calling us and we're following, but our faith just can't take us any further than we need to go, and that string is pulling us back, and we're stuck with a choice. Do we turn around and go back, or do we cry out to Jesus, help me because I can't see, I can't see where to go. I can't do it on my own. This is the line between our belief and our unbelief that stops us dead in our tracks, that we can't go one further step beyond. This is the point, though, where Jesus means to change lives. This is the moment where we are finally called to call on him. The challenge here, the call, the invitation is to take up this prayer, to put it on your lips, to put it in your heart, to make it your own, to say to yourself, to say to it to Jesus for yourself, I believe, but you're going to have to help me here. Help my unbelief. I have to tell the story of a friend of mine who, uh, a friend of mine went through this strongholds type thing, uh, and he's, he's making his way through it. It's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. But it's also really good. And he's making his way through it, and I've talked to him a lot about this. Something happened to him when he was younger, and um, he didn't know how to deal with it. It kind of sunk like a stone inside of him. And for all of his life, he's kind of been facing these things he didn't even know he was facing, really. There was this just, just kind of pit in there. There was this thing that kept real joy out of his life, this thing that made him afraid to face the things that he didn't want to face. That really robbed life from him. Um, one time he told me, uh, it's like a knot that's inside of me that is such a, it's such a binding knot that I didn't even know it was there. This is a guy who's grown up as a Christian all of his life. Grew up in a Christian home. Uh, he's been involved with Christian things. He knows, he knows the Bible. He knows the answers. Uh, he knows he's served in ministry before. Something happened more recently, though, and uh, one day he was just at his wit's end, um, and he just gave it up. He gave up this fight, and he said to God, God, you have to help me. You have to take it from me. Um, long story short, God helped him. I've been able to witness what it's done in his life. I'm able to see with my own two eyes how he's becoming a new person day after day before me. New life is being born. There is freedom from fear and from, from darkness every day. There's a, there's a liberation that goes on. There's gifts that are being born that are already making a real impact in the world. It's one of the greatest and most beautiful things I get to see in my position. And actually, I think we all get to see these if we're, if we're looking for them. One day I asked him, though, I said, 
You've tried to make yourself free from this thing in the past, but it has never worked. What was it this time? What was it that worked? What was it that finally broke through, that finally changed things for you, that finally changed things in you, that at least opened the door to the stronghold being shattered and taken away and for your lives to be changed? What was it? And he said to me, he said to me, you know, Matt, I've been a Christian all my life. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church. I've been involved. I went to Sunday school. I know the answers. I know the Bible. I've served in ministry. I've done real impactful things before. But, and I know this sounds so silly, but it wasn't until I really opened my heart to Jesus actually coming into my life that things finally changed. When he said that, my mind exploded. It wasn't until I really opened my heart to Jesus coming into my life, actually coming into my life and changing things, that things finally changed. Remember the context of this story. They bring this boy to the disciples to be healed, and the disciples can't do it. Jesus' followers can't cast this demon out. For some things, it's not enough to be around Christians. It's not enough to be part of a church. It's not enough to grow up in a Christian home. It's not enough to know the answers. It's not enough to do the things you're supposed to do. For some things, you just need Jesus to come in and open up, open up yourself to Jesus coming in. After this story, the disciples pull Jesus aside, and they're like, hey, dude, why couldn't we cast this thing out? What happened? And you know what Jesus' answer is? He said, uh, this kind, this kind can only come out through prayer. There are some strongholds, some demons, some things that just being around Christians, coming to church, it's just never going to be enough until you open yourself up to Jesus and his power, actually, until you actually let him in to change things. Until you actually put this prayer on your lips. What, what would have happened to this man to this boy, if he heard the promise, all things are possible for the one who believes, and he was like, yes, let's, let's go. Let's sing a song, get some bagels and coffee, and go home. Nothing would have happened. Jesus isn't interested in bagels and coffee and going home. Jesus isn't interested in you knowing the right answer or having the right answers or being part of the right place. Jesus is interested in coming into your heart coming into your life, breaking open the you-know-what that needs to be broken open and changing you, transforming you from the inside out. And all you need to do is what this father does. Say, if you're able to do it, do it. I can't do it on my own. All you need to do is say, put these words on your lips, I believe Help me to get there, because I can't get there on my own.
The question is, have you done that? We talk about this sort of stuff at church every week. We do. We talk about it all the time. Like my friend, you can grow up in this stuff. You can live for 30, 40, 50, 60, 90 years in this stuff and never say this stuff to Jesus for your own. Well, what's stopping you? The challenge, the call, the invitation, again, is to put these words on your lips, and you could do that right now. You could do that before your, your head hits the pillow tonight. You could do it tomorrow morning. It's not something you're going to do once, and life is going to just radically change. I mean, maybe it will. For some people, it might. But for a lot of us, it's saying this again and again and again over the course of time. Uh, it's a road. It's a road to walk down. But you can do this. Just say to him, I believe, help my unbelief. And it's not a lot, but it's enough. It's enough for Jesus. Because what happens next is he calls the unclean spirit out. The boy gives out this cry that was unbelievable, this subhuman cry. It convulses him, something terrible, and it comes out of him. <clears throat> After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy, the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. Most of them thought that Jesus had killed him. Look, is it easy to deal with these kinds of things in your life? Probably not. For some people, it might be like flipping on a light switch. You're groping around in the dark, but that light switch goes on, and then everything is easy. Every, you could see it all. It might be like that for you. I hope it is. But for most of us, for this boy, it wasn't. It was painful. It convulses our lives terribly. Breaking the power of Satan's strongholds in our lives, it might be the hardest thing we ever endure. It might leave us looking like we're dead, just like the boy. Ask anyone who's gone through it or is going through it. It's a road to walk, a long road to walk down with twists and turns. It's a process. It will hurt, but is it worth it? It is absolutely worth it. So the story ends. Jesus takes the boy by the hand. The boy's laying on the ground dead. He looks dead. He is dead, whatever. He's dead. He looks down at the boy. Jesus, compassion in his eyes. He looks down at this lifeless corpse. He takes his lifeless hand into his hand. The same hand that the universe was created through. The same hand that hung the stars in the sky that we sung about in our first song. The same hand that would heal countless people and still heals people today. The same hand that would be pierced by a nail to forgive our sins and the sins of the world and to reconcile us back to God. The same hand that will wipe away every tear from every eye. And he takes that boy's lifeless hand into his own. And look at what Mark writes. Mark is so freaking sharp. <laughs> he writes, and he lifted him up. You know what language that is? That's Easter morning language. That's resurrection language. That's life from the dead language. That's when Jesus died and was buried in the tomb and had no life in him. God the Father lifted him up from the dead to new life. And he puts the boy on his own two feet. 
able to stand. And do you know, do you know that Jesus does this? He does this still. I've seen it. He does this. He puts us on our own two feet so that we can walk free from that string that's looking to pull us back. So that we can walk forward and serve God and enjoy God and live life and love life and use the gifts that God has given us to so that we can live out whom God has created us to be. He does this. He puts us on our own two feet. He lifts us up for any of us who are willing to have our strongholds shattered by Jesus. It might hurt like hell. It might kill you. But he will lift you up and set you on your own two feet. How does that sound? The enemy wants to destroy your life. Jesus has come to give you life. Open yourself up to that. Open yourself up to that power. Actually invite Jesus to come in. I'm going to invite the band forward to uh, lead us in a song now that's really out of, out of season. Um, but it's nothing, it's nothing but this. It's an invitation to allow Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, to allow Jesus to come into our lives and to break the tyranny of Satan, to shatter the strongholds that he has in us, to save us from the depths of hell, to lift us to new life again. So that as they're preparing to lead us in this song, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for uh, your power to break our strongholds. And a message that starts out about uh, our enemy becomes a message about your uh, chain-breaking power. Lord, you know, for each and every one of us, you know what it is in our heart. It could be one thing. It could be a lot of things. You know the strongholds that have been built. You know the way that our circumstances, our sin, and our enemy has, have, have conspired against us to steal life from us. You know those things. We pray, Jesus, that you would make us willing to open up our lives and our hearts to you. Make us feel the desperation so that we are, just, we are forced to throw ourselves at your mercy, to reach out for your help. Let us say with our own words, we believe, help our, help our unbelief. Lord, come in and change lives, change hearts, break stronghold, lift up people to new life, set us on our own two feet so that as we go forward, we can serve you without fear so that we can walk in your ways, so that through us, the world can finally know who you are. And for any of us who are wondering, is this pain, is this process, is it worth it? Answer that question for us, Jesus. Is it worth it? In your name we pray. Amen.